Okay, so welcome to the Yo DMB Raps interviews. On this episode, we've got a very special show. Uh, we've got a friend of mine who I met back in 2018. He is known as the Nightmare of Groningen. He is the CEO and founder of G2C, which is the gateway to China. More on that a little bit later. Uh, he's also got lots of other projects in the music industry that we're going to talk to him about. And most importantly, and most dear to my heart, of course, the Yin Yang Music Festival in China. Uh, how you doing, Merlane? Hey, good morning. Yeah, it was an unexpected uh, late Tuesday, but I'm there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah. It's yeah, it's an early one for me as well. But uh, I wanted to make sure we got this interview in. It's brilliant to have you on here on the show. Uh, just want to go through a few things with you, get to know you a little bit better first. Um, first line of questioning: I grow up in built in the Netherlands, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah, it's called the built, and then a very uh, small. I think you call it a hamlet in English, like a town with a hundred people or less, called Groenekam. So that's uh, <laughs> very difficult to pronounce for a non-Dutchy. And then when I was four, my parents lived to the countryside of Oost Groningen, which is like the northern province, and then just at the German border. And then I went to high school in the city, where we still now in Groningen itself. So um, yeah, I went to the, the side region of the Netherlands, but uh, for me, it's uh, the best place in the world. So what was it like growing up in the built in the eighties then? Because I know you're an eighties baby like myself. What was yeah, uh, what was there to do? Um, well, I, uh, in uh, 87, I was born. So when I was uh, cycling, like Dutch kids do a bit around the house and going, going through nature, uh, that really defined my childhood. So I was always in nature and uh, playing with my friends in the forest behind my parents' house and uh, yeah, listening to, uh, to music, playing with my dinosaurs and Playmobil. And um, I, I can say, I think I had a really good childhood. Excellent. And what was your first music experiences then? Because obviously right now there's a there's a lot of things that you're involved in in the music industry and obviously through your role as the nightmare, which we'll come to a little bit later. But what were your first loves for music? What got you into, you know, consistently loving and listening to a genre of music? Uh, well, my dad uh, had a lot of vinyl from the Beatles, uh, Genesis. He's a big Mike Oldfield fan. So uh, when I was playing with my Playmobil and dinosaurs and little army figures, I would uh, have my own pickup and put on those finals. And I remember going to a flea market and uh, Bad from Michael Jackson was my first own bought album. So with my own little pocket money, that was something that my parents didn't really listen to, which I thought, hey, this is mine. I, I like this. And then I was 10, I think I was taken to my first show of Super Tramp in Ahoy, quite a big venue in Rotterdam. And then I was really astounded by such a big event and yeah, the, the music and everything. So then I really knew like, wow, this music industry is something that, that attracts me. And uh, since I became a drummer at being eight years old and playing piano, music was always a bit there. And then started the first band, I think around being 15. So like cheesy uh, rock band, punk rock thingies. And that gradually went to more louder metal. Because, uh, yeah, it went from uh, Rammstein, Metallica, Marilyn Manson towards Dimo Borgir, Cradle of Filth, Children of Bottom, and then gradually uh, very nasty death metal, grindcore, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> we, we've had a very similar kind of 
music upbringing. I mean, I was the same when I was very little. I liked death metal and rock. Well, I, I liked Guns and Roses. That was my thing. And then, but I, I kind of moved on to like gangster rap and things like that, you know. And there is a big hip hop scene as well, isn't there, in Holland? Uh, did you ever get into any of things like that? Um, I wasn't really much into it, but my friends, uh, my close friends, took me once to a show of Dead Press. And I took them to a black metal show. So that ah. was kind of a nice exchange. And there, this, this raw hip hop, uh, that really got me. I, I wasn't that much in the, yeah, yo, yo, bling, bling. <laughs> but that raw energy was kind of comparable with the, with the metal energy. So um, by experiencing that show, uh, my appreciation for hip hop definitely grew. But it's not a genre I, I listen to at home, for instance. Yeah, I know it's obviously something we'll talk about later with uh, sub-society and, and the club that you was running as well. You did have some um, some help, obviously, with some drum and bass artists, but Dope D.O.D. as well, probably one of the biggest hip-hop exports coming out of uh, Holland as well. They, they've they had some ties with you as well and, and helping you out. Yeah, I, um, I was uh, founding a club in 2011, and uh, I remember in that time, or maybe... 2012 seeing the video clip of what happened and that was oh, a lot of people have seen i think it has 36 million views or something and it was all shot in groningen but it didn't look like that so i was really impressed like wow these guys just uh, from uh, from our little town and um yeah i think they really made uh, also because at that time the dubstep really was growing and their raw hip-hop combined with the dubstep really made them stand out and they also came hanging in our club they're really nice guys like in video they look a bit evil and stuff. <laughs> but they're super friendly awesome guys we got a lot of respect for them so what about when when it moved into the, like the dance music and stuff as well then because like i said we both we both kind of had that bringing in with rock and metal for me there was a there was an instant turn in terms of the the dance music it was like i hated it and then someone took me to a rave and that was it what, what about yourself did you did you have a an experience where it, it kind of progressed from the rock music because there's a lot of similarities with the Arda drum and bass to the gabba to the rock music was it a progression like that not really uh, the funny thing was that i already had a bit of a fascination for for hardcore but as a metalhead, I didn't allow myself to listen to it too much. But there was already some hardcore uh, that, that I liked and sometimes put on. And there was one band I really loved called The Berserker. And it's an Australian death metal band that combines it with industrial hardcore, speedcore stuff. And that was really extreme and, and something I appreciated. But uh, friends me, took me to a techno party, to a drum and bass party. And I still didn't really get the feeling. But during my internship in 2010, I was doing an internship at Epica, this uh, gothic metal band. Then um, I got a call from a friend of me, he said, hey, Merlin, we're going to start a nightclub and uh, you do something with music related uh, as a study. And yeah, we need, uh, we need someone like you. And I was like, okay, dude, well, I'm not really into going out to parties. But in my internship, um, I also organized an R&B party, which was totally not my genre. But I really enjoyed organizing something which wasn't my taste, because then you can look at it from a bit more professional angle. And otherwise, when you do something in your own taste, you're always a bit uh, clouded by wishful thinking and maybe some tunnel vision. So doing this R&B party for the first time and enjoying it um, made me say yes in December 2010 to Julian. Uh, to, to look at the, yeah, what he had with that club. And it turned out it was a basement in the city center of Groningen. 
And in the basement, uh, quite some clubs failed in the past and we could uh, start there next month. And now I gathered all my study loan uh, savings. So it was just three and a half K. And we painted the room black, put in some speakers um, and we started. So um, yeah, in February 2011, we heard we could do it. And then the 10th of March, 2011, um, that was the opening of, of Subsonic. And we suddenly had a place for underground music, techno, house, drum and bass, dubstep at the moment was really rising at that time. Uh, electro, uh, sometimes Psytrance. So it was quite a funny mix from, uh, let's say, melodic deep house to industrial 145 uh, pounding techno kicks. Yeah, I've heard a lot about Subsonic. Obviously going to talk about that in the interview as well. Um, you mentioned Berserker there as well. Uh, he's like, uh, well, again, we synonymous with Gabba for us in the UK. Um, we obviously remember him from, you know, the Knorr records and things like that as well. Was it Knorr? Have I got that right? No, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I, I just knew the, the metal albums of him first. And then I found out about all those uh, Speedcore releases and all the stuff he did in the past. So for me, um, I, I didn't even knew, know those labels. And I think... Then on Soulseek, uh, those kind of uh, programs, you could find it before YouTube uh, really kind of took over with, with finding stuff. So. Yeah, he did. Uh, I think it was Berserker Industries. That was the main label, wasn't it? And Earache, Earache Records. Those yeah, Earache. yeah, definitely. Yeah, because uh, obviously Scott Brown, he used to play a lot of that type of stuff. Scott Brown, obviously a, a huge hardcore DJ in the UK plays happy hardcore but he kind of introduced a lot of gabba to the uk as well obviously through his label and yeah i guess that's where we've we've kind of heard of berserker as well is he is he still going do you know do you know no unfortunately not uh they made the last album quite some years ago and now they quit and i hope they say never say never because i could really uh, use some of that and I'm actually now, uh, I took a break from drumming because I used to be a drummer and we did tours in South America or, well, one tour. Uh, and um, then when my nightclub started, I, I kind of quit. And now in the Corona time, I built up my kit again, got a second base room, so I have two base rooms. And uh, I'm intending to start a new project where I will play horrible black and death metal combined with industrial hardcore and yeah, bringing the world truly together because I haven't found enough music uh, that, that does this. And it's something I would like to listen to. Even if there's only six people on the whole planet that would like it, I would like it myself. And I found a singer, a guitar player, and a bass player already. And she was also in my former band. So uh, a horrible project will soon emerge, I think. Yeah, sounds good. I can't wait to hear that. Absolutely. <laughs> so you still do dabble with the drumming quite a lot then when you get a chance? Uh, yeah, just recently I bought a trailer and my brother has a nice venue and uh, beside that terrain is a place where there is like the waste facility of Groningen so nobody's bothered by noise and in this uh, trailer I put my drum kit, another drum kit so I can rehearse with a friend with a monitor and a click track and some cabinets, my brother has all the guitar gear and then we can do the click track and the vocals on it and then in the other room play board games and drink craft beer so it's kind of a man cave. Okay. <laughs> And you, you, your family, you have some of your family involved in music as well. I know you've got, how many siblings did it say that you have? Yeah, you three about... younger sisters and one younger brother. And uh, my, uh, my brother has a venue. He always started uh, a sound rental company. Never finished his, uh, his high school, but he was always in uh, making sure that uh, items that were working got sold, that he was mixing bands and 
from let's uh, very early age on. And then he progressed in now having his own venue, the loads where uh, we sometimes do parties. And um, we had a subsonic reunion there, and he does everything there from African food dance night towards a heart style party to a funeral to a well, whatever you name it, uh, there's, there's everything is possible there. It has 500 capacity, nice garden. So it's, it's, it's a really great place. So he's still heavily involved in music then as well, isn't he? From, from the club yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then from the organizing aspect, but he also still sometimes plays his guitar. And in the past, we used to jam together. I also had a trailer in that time in my parents' garden near the forest and then uh, play with the band there every weekend. And uh, obviously a little bit more of a delicate subject. We, we spoke recently, didn't we, about um, your sister. You had an elder sister when you was younger and she went missing. And I believe it, it made like national news, didn't it, as well, and across yeah. the country and things like that. Um, do you mind going into a little bit of that and, and, and obviously what was happening around that time in, in Holland? No, of course not. Uh, like it's some, it has a place in our family, in our hearts, and, and it shaped everything how life is now, which is good. So uh, yeah, so I can I can fully talk about that because um, well yeah, let me just explain. I, I was four years old; she was six, and at that time in that village, you didn't even lock your house, you know. And um, that day, she walked home alone from the uh, little village supermarket, the only store that you had there. And after fifteen minutes, she still wasn't there, and then she was never found again. So that was quite. Uh, yeah, quite something. Well, you you being a parent of two, you can imagine that's your worst nightmare, you know? And um, I was four, so uh, at that time, for instance, Peter R. de Vries, a famous uh, crime reporter, really helped my parents a lot. And um, there was a lot of national attention for it, but in the, in the end, it was not sold. Uh, and when I got older in puberty, suddenly uh, the whole realization arose that, hey, now I'm the oldest of the family, which also then kind of inspired me like, hey, I want to be the oldest brother of the rest of the kids that my sister would be proud of. And um, yeah, it, it, in puberty, that wasn't always uh, the easiest time, but I think for a lot of kids in puberty. And by making music uh, and organizing shows with the band and expressing all the frustrations and stuff in that, this loud metal was kind of therapeutical like my dad is a psychologist but you don't go in therapy by your own dad you know so by uh, expressing it all in the in the loud music and getting energy out of arranging shows and and uh, putting our feelings uh, in it that uh, led to that when i was 18 i think yeah the, the period came that i gave it a place accepted that i was the oldest of the kids now and uh, then life became good. I, I could uh, do what I want. I started to study Academy for Popular Culture, start this nightclub, do the tour with my band, I got involved in how the music scene works, made a lot of fuck-ups. Um, but yeah, and, and they also allowed me to do a little uh, chat talk on it, but it is in Dutch, um, to kind of show that that's something very, yeah, the worst that can happen for a parent, that you lose your kid. In the yeah. end, this as a family really keeps us very connected. And I uh, have a lot of respect for the fact that my parents still allowed my middle sister when she was 13 to join us to Wacken Open Air with 80,000 drunk Germans. And that she still had faith in that she, um, as a little girl, she's not uh, tall, uh, stood her ground on a place which sometimes, well, metal scene is quite safe still, but yeah, with 80,000 super drunk people for a few days, of course, things can happen. And that he still kept the faith that she... Um, can handle this 
And therefore, she's now very independent girl. She lived in uh, in Barcelona and in Germany on her own. And I'm uh, very thankful for my parents that they kept this trust and all uh, allowed us to become very independent. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, a very sad story, but it's good that you were able to take some, well, I don't know how to really put it. It was good you were able to take some positives from it and obviously take the inspiration, being the older brother. And that's obviously led you down the route of kind of being involved in music then, I guess, as well, hasn't it? As it does for, probably for a lot of people, you know, any tragic things happening, music's a real good key to keeping your sanity and, and, and obviously uh, your mental health as well, isn't it? Yeah, and, and with music, you're involved in something nice around people that are also having a good time. For instance, when I had my club, I was enjoying, the audience was enjoying, the bar staff was enjoying, the DJs were enjoying, the bouncer at the door was making sure that nice people came in and he enjoyed the job. So everyone was focused on something positive with music as the connecting factor. And I think that positivity that music brings, while the music I listen to is often really loud and extreme with horrible lyrics, but the positive energy that comes out of that is has really been inspiring me to get out of that dark time that arose during my puberty and uh, make something out of it and focus on uh, on things that inspire me and uh, allowing to let other people also have a good time, which is some the, yeah, the best aspect of my job, that I can do things where we all enjoy, express ourselves and, and have a good time, which brings us further because, yeah, we want to have a good time, <laughs> but no, oh, yeah. without bad times, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, obviously, that took you to, well, again, getting a lot more involved from your younger years to to start in um, university as well, studying music management, I believe it was. And where was it? Where was it? Where you did that? In in Leeuwarden. It's like one hour from Groningen, and uh, it's in different province. So I, I stayed uh, living in Groningen. And it was quite uh, something you could do on your own, so you could choose your own project. So uh, in the second year, I chose that I wanted with my band to go to uh, South America. Well, first we wanted to go to Japan, so we made a plan of make anime characters of our band, and uh, well, we found a painter and totally failed. But then I found out about that the Dutch government allows subsidies for uh, tours abroad, so I could. Uh, I was looking into that, and it was still the MySpace time. We didn't uh, use Facebook that much. Oh my God! Yeah, MySpace. Yeah. I think I've still, I think I've still got a MySpace. I think it's still there. I don't I don't know how long ago since I touched it, <laughs> but that was a great website. Whatever happened yeah. to Tom at MySpace? Yeah, yeah, it was great indeed. And I remember that I I thought, okay, there is money available if you have a tour, but you need a bigger headliner. So where to start? Then I saw that uh, the Greek metal band's Rotting Christ played in Colombia and on MySpace, you could just send them a message or I think I sent a message to the singer and I said, hey, Sakis, this is Milan from the Netherlands. Saw you guys uh, played in Colombia. Uh, can you tell something more? Because we would like to play there too, because we had quite some fans. I was in a, a female fronted, we called it epic battle metal uh, band. And then uh, Sakis said, uh, oh, Milan, this is Nelson, uh, the booker there. This is his email, so sent him an email. So gradually we found people in Brazil, in Peru, in Ecuador, and uh, I found Got Defroned, who I read in a metal magazine that they played Japan and North America, but they never played South America. So they were willing to join us. And then we got the money of 22,000 euro. And at that time I was 21. I never had more than 1,000 on my account, you know? So <laughs> I remember the time that I heard I got the money, 
then I made a rookie mistake. I couldn't uh, receive the money because I had no legal form. So <laughs> I had to start a foundation, which is called uh, Stichting Nederlands Music Export, which means in Dutch, Foundation for Dutch Music Export. So in 2009, I founded that. Then I could receive the money. And from there on, also uh, started helping other bands with their uh, export uh, subsidies, which our prime minister at that time called left-wing hobbies. So cultural subsidies. So <laughs> that's kind of the thing we uh, embraced. Okay, let's do some more left-wing hobbies. So um, it was from bringing punk rock bands to Russia, to uh, techno DJs, uh, it became a lot um, during and before I founded my nightclub. So the, yeah, yeah, that's the SNME website then that's that's still running now, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a very old website. Yeah. Should update it. <laughs> I think it hasn't been updated in twelve years. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I we had a big conversation about this in China as well, because it it blew my mind that the government in Holland they actually finance fully finance tours for any artists, DJs, bands, and things like that to actually tour and earn money, don't they? It's it's a big thing in Holland that you can apply uh, for. Yeah, but uh, Canada does it even more. France does it pretty well. Austria too. Um, every country has a kind of music export office i think the uk also has something similar but they are not uh, it's not it's not on the level of of what no i, I don't hear <laughs> that, as soon, grant as soon as uh, as soon as obviously i got back from our first meeting when we met in china that is the first thing i started looking into yeah. <laughs> so yeah we we don't have anything on that level um but you you your your website is that heavily involved in helping those artists get those government grants and so you kind of apply for people to do that is how's that work um yeah but in 2017 the rules changed uh because i was doing this quite a lot for different artists uh but then the rules from the foundation of performing arts which which gives out these grants stated that uh someone who is um asking for the money also has to be the representative of this artist like a manager or a label and I always uh, aspire to be a neutral entity so that I don't represent an artist structurally, but just on project base. So now, I, with this foundation, with this arrangement for tour subsidies, I can't apply anymore because I stay neutral, but I help now still because I like it, artists to uh, check with them what legal form they should have to start a foundation or a BV, you say that's just kind of a limited in the UK. Mm so that you are eligible to get it because if you have a one man running business then you can't get it for instance mm. and um yeah it still just gives me a lot of energy when i see that someone got a grant and it they're also not uh, it's not big amounts you know it uh, you need at least three shows and then you can get your travel cost funded but not your hotel or your food so the promoter needs to do that and um I recall going abroad uh, for 1500 euro with eight band members and that every 10 euro counts so it also makes you very budget aware and uh, stimulates you to to be creative so i think with with funding and subsidies you should always have just not enough because <laughs> that kind of keeps you creative because if you have too much you can always spend it in a good time but by just not having enough and still making it work then, then things kind of happen and you become more professional well, it's, it's one of the kind of main costings, really. I mean, if you think if you think of like traveling maybe to Australia or the USA, one of the main kind of costing splits as an artist, if you're a band or a DJ, is getting those flights. They're, they're expensive kind of flights, aren't they? And um, for the majority, 
from experience, you know, even if you're not going to hotel, you, your sofa, you know, you jump on people's sofas and things like that. I've done it myself. Like say, I've, I've planned tours myself in the USA and, and Australia. And if, <clears throat> if the promoter wasn't obviously do, getting me a hotel, I'd, I'd stay with the promoter. Do you know what I mean? And things like that. So if you've got that big cut of cost <clears throat> taken care of, it's going to obviously open a lot more doors for artists, isn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, no, definitely. For instance, uh, Frequency, you has this breakfast party in the past, a drum and bass producer from uh, Groningen, great guy. He uh, had this funding so he could do a tour in China, Japan, I think uh, Korea and Australia and New Zealand. Uh, so, yeah, without that funding, because he's still quite underground and it's, uh, yeah, it's not the mainstream drum and bass that he does, but the promoter there really wanted to have him, so they could give him a normal fee the travel cost uh, intercontinental recovered, he would get good hotels and therefore have a great tour and build towards the fact that he can do these tours now without needing the funding. And that that's really nice. It should be a catalyzer and not that artists mm. keep on relying on them because at a certain moment, the, mark, the market also needs to have an interest in you. Sometimes, recently, I was in a panel, it was about um, local hip-hop and funding and the people were constantly talking about how to get more funding but i thought okay the funding needs to catalyze something it also especially in hip-hop you also need to have some street credibility right if after the second album you still need twenty-five thousand euro to make a second album but if nobody wants you sorry but where's your relevance then and then uh, a woman felt <laughs> it well Malayne, i think that's very neoliberal thinking i was like this is not neoliberal thinking. I love a cultural subsidy, but I think there's a certain relevance also has to come out of it at some moment. Otherwise, what are you giving your money for? Then you rather spend it to 10 artists and give them all 100, 1,500 euro and make sure they have good cover art and a better post-production or whatever, you know? So, yeah. Well, it, it brings it brings the question back to exactly why are you touring? Obviously, what you're trying to do is, is get a new audience, isn't it? And gain new experiences. And it's great having that subsidy, as I say, to, to get you there. But if you're not taking full advantage of that tour in terms of networking and the meeting to kind of build your brand and, and you know, build your audience to get the music there. Because, again, that is the dream, isn't it? You want people knocking on your door to do more of these tours to get the music there. And if you're the one that's always forcing that tour to happen, then you're not you're not really growing, are you? You know what I yeah. mean? So it's a good point. There needs to be a balance between what the audience and the promoters want and and you and if you can't of course it's good especially in the beginning to keep pushing but at a certain moment it needs to go a bit automatically despite that i see a lot of people that that do use this have a great time and, and let people enjoy because there are so many artists around so it is tough as an artist to to come in between things uh so yeah, I think it's a good tool, but it's uh, sometimes for the people that really need it, difficult to apply for. And the people that don't really need it anymore and have some clever tricks to, to get money again, there could be some more balance in it. But um, yeah, above all, we can't complain that it's there. So you mentioned, obviously, this, like the SNME, what you're doing with with Holland and being able to apply for this. You mentioned other countries like Canada and France. How does how does an artist start to look into this? So if you were to give somebody advice now in other countries, when you know Holland, I'm sure it's it's a little bit more widespread in terms of knowledge. But let's say somebody wants to look into this in one of these other countries who might be watching now. What's the best first port of action to start looking into if these grants exist? 
Yeah, uh, I think you can just Google music export offices. And then there is quite an overview of uh, which countries have which one. So that's, they all have different names. So in Norway, there's just music Norway. And um, I think, uh, especially at, at music conferences like Eurosonic or uh, next month or in May, there's Tallinn Music Week, uh, Bime in Bilbao, at those kind of events, um, all those representatives of uh, the funds come there, speak to people, take some of their, for instance, Dutch Music Export is also a Dutch uh, foundation. They bring three talented acts from the Netherlands, they think, uh, that are worth uh, investing in. They take them to South by Southwest, uh, to um, uh, Great Escape in Brighton, and, and those kind of events. And all those countries have, and not all of them, but most of them have this export that are with people that are also very willing to help because they have some money that they can spend on artists that take the effort that have some interest from a foreign country. So they, those people are your friends. Uh, you should uh, get to know them, talk to them and say like, hey, I have a great band. We're not that big yet because they believe in investing in talent, but there needs uh, to be a promoter there, for instance, that is willing to pay the hotel and a, a fee and then they can chip in with travel costs. It was the same. I discovered an Austrian uh, live deep house band. So it was with a singer, a drummer, and a synth guy they're called HBOB. And I saw them at the Ripperbaan Festival, I think in 2016. Ripperbaan is also a showcase festival in Hamburg. Then at Eurosonic in Groningen, one of the biggest showcase festivals, I saw them again. And I was really impressed. And we did this festival on the Chinese wall. So I thought, like, wow, this act should should come play here, you know, this is perfectly fitting. It's for people that like a live band, for a dance crowd. So I found their manager, I showed him the picture, look, you guys need to play here. And I'm like, oh, wow, this looks cool. And then uh, some weeks later, it turned out that they could arrange the funding through Austria Music Export, because at that time they were also not really known yet. And around that, they organized a tour through China and Thailand, I think. And, and now they are uh, getting, uh, I think, 15, 20K per show touring the whole world, selling out big halls. So those kind of programs really help uh, artists, emerging artists, to come to the next level and in the end, not needing it anymore. And therefore, it's more than <laughs> what this uh, prime minister said, the left-wing hobby. It's actually very important because it creates jobs. It creates, it's in the end, a very good stimulant for the economy. And, and that's what people often don't see because they think like, oh, yeah, it's for some creatives that can't make their own money. You know, and yeah, that's not what it's for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, everybody should really start jumping on this. Hopefully this, uh, this video gets a lot of views and we start to see some Google searches happening because, yeah, again, it's, it's touring is a really good way to get music to you, a new audience, isn't it? So, you know, for me, it'd be a dream to obviously have something to help to catapult more things like this um because it is a battle do you know what i mean when you when you've got those extra fees and your name isn't as big it's good to obviously have something to kind of not rely on there but have in your back pocket as we say in the uk you know just something that obviously you can use to kind of build and grow your audience up a bit more yeah, yeah it's definitely stuff. more attractive also for a promoter because when i, yeah. I was always on the promoter side and then you have so many costs that people are not aware of People always complaining about promoters in the clubs, you know, but I really know their position and why they pay so bad often because you have so many, let's say, taxes on waste of the club and on personnel and all kinds of things you can't even imagine that all add up. 
And I remember in France, sometimes we had a, a techno night and there was some uh, local DJs that wanted to host a night. They said like, yeah, we need this guy from Berlin because he's really killing it on uh, this, this podcast and uh, this festival. So they would say, it costs uh, 500 euro and then the travel costs and the booking fee and the hotel and the dinner and drinks at the night and maybe some uh, little uh, Colombian envelope. And, uh, <laughs> and then those people don't see that you might have had the same uh, effect on the crowd with a great local guy that uh, would uh, get um, 50 or 100 euro. Uh, but of course, you also want to have um, yeah, artists that have more potential that do reach these uh, these geeks that are deeply into it. Well, a lot of people are just enjoying having a good time with their friends. So there needs to be a balance between the financial side and the artistic side. But in this way, we, for instance, had Rainier Zonneveld, one of the biggest names in techno now, when he was still 150 euro. And at that time, he was already very talented and a nice guy. So I've, it's really cool to see him grow now to the level of, I think he gets uh, 50k a show. And as a person and as a musician, he hasn't changed much. He has just improved, but he already had that mindset and this enthusiasm and production level like the guy does 18 hour live sets, which is crazy, <laughs> all own material. So yeah, we had a lot of artists that were uh, emerging that would, would play for a lousy fee in our club. And then at a certain moment also uh, yeah, grow to a bigger level. I often say to an artist, you should get to the 500 level. Because I know artists that play for 20 years and can survive on 500 euro fees. And like everyone who can count to four can play for 150 euro to generalize a bit. But getting out of the 250, 350 zone to be in the 500 and grow from there, that's a tough one. Uh, because then it's also about the art of saying, no, let's say I book you for 500 and then another club says, um, okay, I, I uh, don't have uh, much budget. So Lee, I would book you for 200 and you say, ah, I can make it 250. Like, okay, cool. Well, if I hear that the next time, said, oh, okay, he also played for 250. So I'm going to pay him 500 next time. Maybe can I have another warm up DJ also for 250. Then I too. So to at a certain moment say no. And then uh, have the faith that by saying, no, better offers will come and that you will grow. I think for every artist, that's a very hard process, but it's, it's worth it. People are mm -hmm. more likely in general in life to say yes to things, which in some situations is very good. But the art of saying no, uh, same as you're a girl in a club and a guy is picking on you and you're not clear that he, he should just fuck off, say no, that, that's not always easy. So after university, this takes us to 2010, and I believe you took over the club Subsonic in Holland as well. Is that, uh, is that in your home city or in Groningen? Yeah, that's in Groningen, and it was first called the Pin-Up Club. <laughs> so, uh, and my, my brother actually came with the name Subsonic, because uh, one and a half week before we opened, we still didn't have a name. And we were walking in the forest behind my parents' house, and he has a sound tech saying, you know what, subsonic frequencies are the ones that you don't hear, but which you do feel. We're like, hey, that's pretty cool. And then as an abbreviation, you have you can go to the sub. So that was also nice. And Eurosonic, we wanted to also to be a part of that festival and as a location. So about subsonic. Yeah, suddenly subsonic was there. And then, yeah, in 2011, we started it. So it was my study finishing project. So it was nice that I could uh, yeah, use a practical project to get my study points. Was this like your main 
uh, kind of ties happening with drum and bass then? Is, is that where you started having a lot more drum and bass ties by running the club? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I also started appreciating it. Before that time, I found it a bit boring. And then <laughs> by having a monthly drum and bass night or sometimes even more, uh, I, I suddenly found out like, hey, I actually really enjoy this genre. And uh, we had uh, Noisia, of course, in Groningen, which I think most drum and bass people do know. Yeah. And, uh, and they also often uh, came to have a beer and they, they took Skrillex uh, with them when, um, yeah, he, because he learned producing very well from them. So he slept on their couch uh, before he was very well known. And um, Joost, the youngest brother of Thijs from Noisia, he did the monthly drum and bass parties called Submerge, together with Tom, a friend of him. So they always made sure that there was quality lineup with locals, but also flew in artists from the UK and the entrance was three euros. So before 1 a.m. it was for free and after 1 a.m. it was three euro and still having a full house and being able to pay the artists from that and keep some of the leftovers of three euros. So it was a lot of passion involved. And yeah, Submerge was really one of our biggest uh, nights, which also then led uh, to sometimes do a separate party on another location where we, for instance, had a Diesel Boy dropping by, or uh, yeah, we, we did the Prolex once in Simple. And um, I did, yeah, it, it was an interesting time for drum and bass. Drum and bass has always been big in Groningen. Also now after COVID, uh, the, the boys from Bassface, uh, who have been existing since I think 2012, Bassface community, they they always sell out and they bring in variety and quality in drum and bass so there's good movement yeah i mean obviously for anybody living under a rock who don't know noisia is obviously the greatest drum and bass trio in my eyes that's ever lived and they obviously put Groningen on the map that's where they're from uh and obviously being the club there you had them as as regulars there as well didn't you and uh you mentioned well, too chill but uh once uh, uh martin really helped us out by by playing on a wednesday uh, which which was great because it was midsummer, and he felt like okay, I can play with you guys. So suddenly we had a totally full house, and we at that time we really needed money to uh, to pay a new uh, two thousand liter tank of beer. And in the summer, all the students are going to Groningen. Groningen has eighty thousand students among a two hundred forty thousand population, and it was tough times. <laughs> and Martijn played. We had a crazy full house with Noisia for free on a Wednesday, which was insane, you know. And um, yeah, so we're very thankful for them. Also, that uh, Squillax was playing at their King's Night event, and that um, he found it okay to play at the after party from. We always had an after party from six a.m. till nine a.m. And um, yeah, that day, and the management uh, asked uh, Sony if he would be open for it. And of course, he already had been at our place, and he said yes, it's cool. So that was awesome that we had Skrillex in, in Subsonic and we had like a 250 capacity and well, I think that night was around 300 or maybe even more. So it was, uh, yeah, it was crazy. And you, you say your youngest brother was running submerged with this from Noisia as well then? So they... Uh, and the the youngest brother of uh, Thijs from Noisia. Ah, right. Okay. So he was actually running events with you as well then? Yeah. All oh, right. Excellent. And it ended in 2015. Why did the club shut things? Obviously, it sounds like there's been some legendary nights there. It was, I guess it was a staple of the of the town of uh, Groningen, wasn't it? It was really... Yeah, it was a place where a lot, everyone could be himself. And uh, even like 18-year-old uh, girls would come on their own 
and find people there. And, and it was it was a sleazy basement and not everyone was always uh, super sober, but it was still a kind of very safe environment. So uh, yeah, in, in 2015, the chemistry between me and my business partner was over and his dad was our landlord. We also had a restaurant together and uh, the financial constructions were very dodgy. And we, we started with the three of us and the other one who was still a very good friend of me, um, already in late 2014 decided that, yeah, it wasn't working out anymore. And from that moment, the collaboration between me and the other guy also, yeah, he was mainly running the restaurant. I was doing the club and, um, yeah, in 2015, it was over. After that, we rejuvenated the, the concept in a different location, uh, with, with the guy that already, uh, with Julian who quit in 2014 we thought we're going to do this together with a live venue so that there's live acts until 12 and then from 12 to 6 we do the club and we had a crowdfunding we made a really cool led tunnel where which on the dmx of the sound could uh yeah be involved with the music but in the summer of 2017 the the guy who ran the venue said i'm gonna quit because his life part was totally not taking off and we were delivering the amounts of uh bar money with that we said we would but uh yeah he decided i'm gonna quit and then we didn't have location anymore i was I just had become 30 at that time and then i thought like hey maybe it's good it's time for for something new and and my nightclub owner life was over just by being 30 which uh, yeah i started when i was uh, late 23 so it was it was a good moment to to make a next step kind of yeah absolutely and obviously that led on to a lot of other things as well. Uh, I believe you started up Subsiety as well, which was obviously helped to, uh, wasn't it? I believe the right description for it was an online concept, a digital environment to help people find artists around the world, which I believe leads to the Here and Now website. Is that right? Yeah, I conceptualized it. And then uh, my business partner, Anastasia, where I run a foundation with, where we connect cultural projects and corporate funding. She... Uh, had some input also for me to to create a website here and now where you can find an overview of everything that's happening in your city and it's really nice overview so you can find a jazz jam or a reggae party or a techno party or a somalian cooking workshop or a vintage clothing sale uh and we always refer to it uh, as a joke like look it's like pornhub but then for events so uh, that you could just in one click on a category wise can find whatever you want. And um, the whole idea indeed with the concept of society behind it is that uh, you would have a global network of cities. Let's say you come to um, Leuven in Belgium and you think, hey, what's going on in Leuven? That you can think, hey, I'm a drum and bass head. So is there any drum and bass party going on here? And you see, oh, in uh, next week there is a drum and bass party in the local, um, say pop podium in Dutch, but it's like a venue that has some state funding for for underground and emerging music. Well, then you can find that. Or if you're more into just a tropical house, you can find that. And that because now uh, we live in 2023, but we still can't find just a proper party when we are in Milan or whatever, you know, because every city has its own website and there is no shared information or if like resident advisor is great, but it's only like in Barcelona, London and Berlin, I think a bit in Amsterdam is still limited to a small amount of genres. So if you would have a proper overview where let's say every city that has a, 
100,000 inhabitants and some things going on where you could uh, browse a European map and, and find category-wise what's happening. And yeah, that would also for music tourism, for emerging artists to find the clubs where they play the music that is relevant to them uh, would be something that would benefit everyone. And then you could even uh, look into models in which people can choose to be rewarded for being a loyal customer or for uh, just uh, finding the stuff and not being involved with that with their socials, um, but for clubs that do like it. We, we worked out a whole framework which uh, of which here and now is just kind of the beginning. And then eventually it would be awesome to uh, you know, to have this on a global scale, but that's, uh, that's still far away. But technically so, it should be doable. Okay, so the difference with this and resident advisor is that this is kind of covering more towns and cities rather than your big major cities in each country then it's it's going to have a lot more coverage for people to find if they're in like say if they're in Groningen instead of being in uh, Amsterdam and things like that as well then yeah yeah and also for classical music uh, jazz um, rock there, there's so much going on even in Groningen there is around 200 to 250 events in a week that you can visit publicly so that can be a jam session in the conservatory or a big uh, 10,000 people concert. But imagine that for a yeah, relatively small city like Groningen, you already have that amount of events. Uh, a city like London or Berlin or Paris or Brussels, they have, there's so much going on. And if you would be able to find that, I've often, when I'm in a foreign country, I travel a lot. And then I know a DJ or someone that I met that, that lives in that city. And this person will tell me, Oh, for, for this kind of thing, you need to go there. Uh, but if I'm just an ignorant tourist and I don't know anyone there and in the native language, I can't Google, then there's a missed opportunity for, I once in, uh, in Athens in Greece, just uh, ran into a small basement where there was an amazing metal band playing. And just by being in a random street, finding that out. But it would be awesome if I'm in Athens and I think, hey, I want to see some black metal tonight. Oh, there's actually a metal bar and there is a place where they organize some small shows. Oh, and the information is updated. So yeah, that's something we'd like to build towards. It, it sounds like a hefty feat. I mean, obviously you've got to kind of find out about all of these events in all of the cities to get them on the website listed. How, how are you going to go about obviously having that information put through the website constantly? Because that, that is a lot. Yeah, it, I think what uh, there's an old school site in the Netherlands called Party Flock. Yeah. And they are still very updated uh, with what's going on. And there are some dedicated volunteers, but uh, for here and now, there's an, a student being paid to, to monitor all the events going on. And they still sometimes miss a few. But uh, it needs heavy moderating and updating. And um, I recall that there was once an attempt of a website like this called Groningen Live. And they made an overview, but then they said to all the venues, yeah, you better update your information in here. And all the PR people at the venues, they're already super busy. So they thought like, yeah, why would I spend time on this going, logging in, in that system, doing things in WordPress, while not knowing if there's even anyone looking at that website. So that doesn't work. It really should come from the website itself that it actively gathers information. And here and now people can also send in uh, a party. Let's say I uh, organize a drum and bass rave in a warehouse and 
here now hasn't found out. I just sent him, hey guys, on the 14th of April, I do this and the entrance is 10 euro and this is the ticket link and uh, let's go. Here's the photo, so you can also do that. So it needs, to, yeah, to have a community because there's so many websites that have an amazing uh, starting point, but then end up at the graveyard of unused websites that nobody looks at. Yeah, I, I do remember Party Flock, funnily enough. Um, yeah, still, they had, they had a forum, didn't they? I believe there was like a chat yeah. forum on there back in the day. Yeah, because I, I used to go on there talking about Gabba and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, that's still the core. You can also find an R&B party or whatever on it, but still, the Gabba hardstyle hardcore is is the main thing that Party Flock relies on. Yeah, I do, I do remember. So the website for anybody wanting to visit is uh, www.hereandnow.nl. Is that yeah. right? NL is in Netherlands. So yeah, check it out. Uh, obviously, yeah, if you've got English, any... so because um, we also have a lot of international inhabitants in Groningen. So that yeah. originally was a bit meant for also that those people really can't find the stuff because they don't speak Dutch, and all the Dutch people can speak English. So why not have an English overview of all the events in Groningen? And is it set up yet for people to actually submit events into there as well? Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. So let's move on to one of the main chat points of today, um, the nightmare of Groningen. How the hell did this come about? Because this blew me away. You started uh, being the nightmare, which obviously a very different meaning in the UK when we talk about nightmare. It's something quite scary. But you started this in October 2018, didn't you? Tell me about the story from how you got there to where you are now. Yeah, uh, well, already before... Um... I was being the nightmare, and in, in British, nightmare, nightmare, <laughs> so it sounds like very similar, and I might be the nightmare for the people uh, that uh, want to sleep and that don't want to party. <laughs> but I was, um, I think around 2016, got a bit more, also when the first Subsonic ended, got a bit more involved in the, in the policy side of uh, events and permissions and uh, local governments and, yeah, some things that some people might see as a bit boring. But in the end, you need all those boring aspects to ensure that there is room for talent development, for people having a good time, and uh, to bring the stakeholders together. Because the night kind of consists of three groups that do not understand each other, but still need each other. And they need a kind of a mediator, which is the nightmare. So the first group is um, officials, governmental uh, people, um, politicians, public servants, people that have to deal with the night. Second group is the professionals making their money in the night. So that's bar owners, DJs, um, bar staff, cleaners, um, bouncers at the door, all those people making their money in the night, the professionals. And the third group is the people um, enjoying the night, expressing themselves, not having a stake in it, except for the fact that they, they need the night to, to relax, to blow off steam after a hard week of work to meet new people, to enjoy new music. But those three different groups all have a different view on the night. In the end, they kind of want the same, uh, a safe night where everyone has a good time and where some money economy-wise is generated and where people discover and uh, search their own uh, boundaries, maybe even. So um, as a nightmare, I think it's your task to bring them together, to speak the language of all three and see how they can find each other and uh, get along a bit more. And in 2018, I was elected for this, and I already was in some talking groups between venues and the local government and the rehearsal spaces and that kind of stuff. So it wasn't a new world to me. And I 
did a um, fellowship program of the European Music Council, which is like an umbrella organization from classical conservatory groups towards uh, music export funds. So it's like a very big uh, network. And there I yeah, learned speaking a bit of that more official language to us and realized that the policy made in the EU and in the Netherlands also allows rapes and techno DJs, for instance, to thrive. So there, there's a whole network, which I find fascinating. Um, and by having that knowledge and be also in the pop coalition, which is kind of an advisory board to the Dutch government, uh, got a bit in that role. Then I was elected as a night mayor. And after one year, I found out, OK, I need to have a board around me because on my own, I can't do this all. I need uh, some more information from people that are deeper in specific topics. So we started the Nachtraad, the Night Council, initially with 13 people. It was a bit based on the Berlin Club Commission. But of course, Groningen is a bit smaller and 13 people is way too much. So now we have uh, six others around me that all, like a minister, have a task. So for instance, uh, Misha is uh, taking care of um, responsible alcohol and drug use among students or party audiences. Lucia, who used to work as a bar lady in my club, taking care of the prevention of sexual harassment in the nightlife. Jorik, uh, taking care of the live music. Peter, the underground dance, the LGBTQ. Anastasia, the, the international audience of Groningen. And Geeske, she works in a more mainstream club responsible for the, the more regular bars and the mainstream uh, thing. And in this way, we, we cover kind of the whole scope of the Groningen night and um, do workshops for students, for bar staff, that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm kind of the spokesperson of it and keeping uh, the thing together. Excellent. So what kind of problems do you face being the nightmare then? What, what do you come across and the hurdles that you have to get over regular? Well, everyone um, is always complaining about everything. So you need to be uh, willing to get some hate. <laughs> and uh, also sometimes have an unpopular opinion because you know it's important to speak out uh, on specific things. You can't make everyone happy, which is fine. And um, sometimes there you talk to groups that both approach from a very different angle. And also in the COVID time, that was sometimes quite difficult because some people said, no, we need strong measures because it's super dangerous. And our people said like, ah, come on, this is only affecting uh, old and fat people. We should just party. And you yeah, need to be somewhere like uh, without uh, doing a compromise for everything so that you don't have an opinion, but also not putting yourself in the corner that nobody takes you serious. So it's uh, you need to be quite diplomatic and uh, being able to dare say things that not everyone might enjoy and also keeping all the different groups with their own demands um, in line kind of so it's uh, and i also learned by trial and error and i think um yeah i like it um also in the international network of, of people that do it in their own city i was in uh I've been in quite some conferences where we gather last uh, november in zurich had people from all over europe uh, discussing these kind of topics and it was so nice to be able to speak to people that understand both the cultural side as the health side as the business side um, there yeah there's not so many people that that work on those different fields with the night as a whole uh, and and therefore it was great to exchange knowledge and form we have uh, also a, the Dutch nighttime alliance where we form a unity with nine Dutch cities Amsterdam, Rotterdam, The Hague, Nijmegen, Leiden, Haarlem, Eindhoven, Groningen and Utrecht. Yeah. <laughs> and um, 
yeah, in this way, we try to uh, exchange what we've learned instead of reinventing the wheel, making our nights safer. Amsterdam just got a new night mayor last week. And uh, together, we uh, hope to generate more money for the development of the night, for the safety. We're currently also um, fighting for the Night City Hall, the Nachtstadhuis in Dutch, a place in the city center where you can get help if you've been sexually harassed or if you need information about responsible use of substances or if you uh, want to file in a complaint if you've been discriminated at the door or could be all kinds of things in a preventive way or in a way when it just happened that you get help and so that there is a safe space in the city center where also parents from students that just got in the city know that if something goes wrong they will get help or preventively things won't go wrong and uh, that's something we're really fighting for to get the budget now we already presented it to the local politicians they had some remarks we're uh, reshaping the plan a bit and then uh, hope to push it through before summer so is, is that center open now because i know this is one of your new projects as well isn't it like you said to get the funding on this is this something that's open now and you're waiting for funding to to carry it on or are you uh, waiting no, for funding no, to it's, um, yeah it, the the place now being renovated uh, so if we get funding we uh, the plan is to open in november december because then it would be ready then we can hire staff in the in the summer and, and started and fully presented in uh, Eurosonic January. So that's, uh, yeah, and currently we're good on track. Excellent. And uh, you, you actually said you met some of the nightmares as well then? Yeah, yeah. Uh, many, yeah. Uh, and some, some cities have a club commission, uh, so it's not always a nightmare. For instance, yeah. in Berlin, it wouldn't be good to, for such a big city like Berlin to have a nightmare because nobody can represent such a diverse big city with so many organizations and people and therefore it's better that they have a club commission so they are around the world as well they're not just not just yeah, yeah. from uh, queensland to bogota uh, new york um yeah the, yeah the network is really growing yeah yeah like a selection of superheroes so like the avengers when you come together basically isn't it all the nightmares and taking care of everybody in the clubbing community <laughs> yeah it's really fun how during covid the network really tightened because people saw hey we all fight for this uh, this nightlife then when you don't have it anymore you see how valuable it is for to keep people together also people with very opposing visions when they're on a dance floor with a beer, they suddenly get along pretty well, while uh, debates could get very heated in that, those times. So then we really saw how we needed the night as a unifying factor. And the people all in a different way, and there's academics, city planners, rave organizers, um, venue owners, there's a lot of different people, but all with the same thing in common, that they wanna make the night better create more room for talent, uh, better fees for artists, more safety for women or for everyone that uh, feels uh, unsafe. And and this that's united and that, that movement is growing. Even let's say Christian conservative parties and governments are seeing the benefit of it. So obviously being involved in a lot of things to do with the nightlife and, and involved in obviously the community in, in Groningen as well. You did a TED talk a few years ago as well, didn't you? Back in 2015 talking about entrepreneurship and obviously your your beginnings in the music industry as well wasn't it yeah and uh they asked me uh, to do it uh, to uh and uh, there was a very young audience and to stimulate uh people to to start yeah developing their own dreams because i've um i think i'm characterized by doing things from scratch there's just an idea a dream 
and then from that dream a concrete first step emerges and from there we go somewhere so for instance with the south america tour or the the festival in china or uh, subsonic just started with an id and then you make a first step so how can you make that first step they asked me to do uh, a lecture a talk of uh, 15 minutes about and I'm, I'm still sometimes doing them for students next uh, next tuesday for instance i always really enjoy when people have an idea but they don't know how to get started and they need to do it themselves also one of my best teachers during that time also constantly gave me some inspiration but never really helped me i had to do it myself and when i then was stuck he would give me a little suggestion like hey Malay, you can actually maybe look into this and then i did it myself again and got further uh, so by stimulating people to dream big and then uh, distill it to a step that they actually can make which might be difficult uh, but then there hey suddenly your scope is wider oh this is also an opportunity grabbing those daring to fail it's a lot about failing like um i've failed so much <laughs> still failing every day in a lot of things but in the meantime also other things happen because when you fail you'll learn an experience that you otherwise would never get and those are the most valuable ones you never intend to fail but by doing so this lesson that only you know comes out and gives you kind of superpower to go to the next one because you're the only one that knows it yeah. and therefore gradually going somewhere yeah you have to fail to succeed as they say don't they so obviously more failings the more education you've got to not fail basically isn't it and to move forward I wish the TED Talk was uh, subtitled in some way. You can't even get it subtitled or anything like that. That'd be really good to watch. And so if you're Dutch and you, or you speak Dutch, definitely go and take a, check out uh, Melaine Pullman TED Talk on YouTube. It's there. And uh, I'm sure it's very interesting from what you're saying there. But yeah, unfortunately, I don't speak Dutch. So I wasn't able to uh, watch the whole thing. <laughs> I remember I was very... Uh nervous at that time because now i'm quite used to do some public speaking even at the new year's thing for the, the market the, the central square for ten thousand people which i was a bit anxious for but at that time i didn't do it so often so in the beginning especially you can see my foot a bit shaking but story went well and i was being trained by a guy that learned me to do the whole story by heart so it's not as spontaneous as it might look but therefore the whole structure of the build-up which i developed myself was in it and it was very good uh, yeah I, I could also involve the story of my sister how it shaped me and uh the the rehearsals of the bands and um organizing shows which gave me a bit more structure to also finish my high school and not smoke weed every day mm -hmm. so it's uh yeah it's like a total picture i'm sorry i can still fully stand behind me yeah absolutely yeah i hopefully uh people check that out then uh 2015 i believe the ted talk was wasn't it so yeah go check that out on youtube
that brings me on uh, to probably the main thing that I wanted to talk about with yourself is what obviously put us two together and got us in touch, and that's the Yin Yang Festival in China. So quick introduction for people from my side of it. Um, this was massively one of the most positive experiences to do with music I've ever had in my life. Uh, around 2017, I found a video uh, from a good friend of mine, Thrasher, obviously a, a Dutch uh, drum and bass DJ, uh, posted a, a set that he played on the Great Wall of China in Beijing. So yeah, you heard me right. It was literally on the Great Wall of China. There's videos all over YouTube of this. I asked him how he ended up playing there because uh, obviously you see something like that, it blows your mind. It's not somewhere you'd ever expect music to be played, let alone a festival to be going off. And this is obviously where he put me in touch with yourself. We discussed, uh, I believe it was around end of 2017 to possibly try and get me there. And I ended up coming over and playing and doing a little tour myself in China in 2019, performing on the wall, met some great people, obviously hung out with you guys as well, the Dutch guys that were touring, made some, made, made, uh, made some friends for life, obviously with it as well, with David and Julian and people like that. Um, tell me a little bit about how you got involved with this, because again, this is something that still blows me away to this day. You met tommy and rainbow and it went from there didn't it yeah i, I read a vice article which said uh, tommy uh, is uh, there was a dutch vice article and said tommy hendrix is dating a supermodel and learning shanghai how to party and and that was funny because uh, rainbow uh, was um she was born in the 60s and she uh, started the first modeling agency in the 80s already in china as the first woman and also got involved in the house uh, scene when it just got started, you know, and in China at that time, it was all very strict and closed and communistic. So um, she, um, with the money that she made from the modeling company, bought a villa and some other assets. And this villa was the mansion. And it was in an uh, area with a wall around it in uh, Shanghai. And the wall had a little door. So every weekend people would go through that door, go to the basement, and have radical parties until Monday morning. And the people living in the mansion would live there for free, but they had to help out in the club by cleaning, doing bar shifts. Uh, so it was a, a whole community. And Tommy had met her and they fell in love and uh, she was uh, quite a bit older than he was. But the, yeah, that, that made the whole, it's such a crazy story. And I thought like, wow, I need to meet these people, you know? So I just looked him up on Facebook, sent him a message costed me 40 euros him to get it in his inbox because we weren't friends and um so that was fun and then i came there in september 2014 with dr electrolove the belgian um yeah electro king you could say and camara guys that actually already uh, played in my club and uh tommy really wanted to have them uh, play as a techno tech house live act uh, they are and we came with them i could arrange some of the travel cost funding and then I fell in love with the emerging Chinese underground dance scene because you have a lot of big EDM clubs with uh, trashy uh, big room house and LED screens and everyone ordering champagne bottles and being bored and doing dice games and to do some shots. That was not really what got me interested. But we were in Arkham, an underground club in Shanghai, 
raw, nasty concrete basement. And there a night emerged from Chicago house to tech house to techno to electro to drum and bass to pounding Bergheim kicks to uh, and people adapting to the sound like hey what's going on here how do you dance to this being fully open and uh, aiming to discover new music while in the Netherlands everyone is quite spoiled has seen everything and yeah. You know, even when a big, uh, let's say, uh, Richie Halton, a big name comes by, people are like, oh, okay, I'll see if I have time. Oh, that might be nice. You know, and there people are like, hey, I don't care. I want to see a new upcoming artist. And I'm still, uh, also in the COVID time, stay deeply involved. And now I'm uh, working with different Chinese parties to bring artists underground, uh, indie bands towards house DJs. And they don't have to be big because the people are looking for interesting new music, which is pretty cool. So I can now... Uh, yeah, show them some interesting artists which don't have a big name yet, but the who of whom I know that they are amazing and they will have an opportunity to get a good fee and to play their own festivals and clubs. So, um, yeah, and that made me in the end also find found a um, company that makes Chinese social media profiles for Western artists because the whole Chinese internet is different. So, your SoundCloud and your Spotify and your Facebook uh, don't work, they're, they're blocked, and most people do not have a VPN. So they can't find it. And therefore you need QQ, NetEase, Weibo, Douyin, which is the Chinese TikTok, uh, Bilibili, which is Chinese YouTube, to ensure that you can be found by your potential fans or the people that follow you. Because the DSPs release a new track quite fast on NetEase, for instance, which is a combination between Spotify and Instagram a bit. But um, yeah, you can't do posts yet. So we help people to to be able to reach out to their fans. EDM artists, hardstyle uh, is really a growing genre, and we want to uh, grow more towards other genres too. In the COVID time, we lost uh, thirty clients of the thirty-seven that we had, <laughs> but a lot of them passed because they just could not play in uh, in China, and therefore also yeah, then spending five hundred in a month is something uh, which even for artists that make 20k a show yeah they can save on so we're very thankful for the loyal ones that stayed and now that we're getting more and more interested people see shining opening up i'm going there myself in two weeks again and uh and the future looks bright yeah i mean don't get me wrong it, it is there are a few hurdles to get over to get your visa to go into china it's, yeah, not, it's, not, it's not it's not the easiest it's not the easiest but you know, from experience, it, it's definitely worth going through those hurdles, even if it's not for the music, but for the culture is is very different than anywhere else in the world. And it is in a positive way. Like I say, it's worth having that experience for anybody, really, to obviously visit China and, and take in that culture. Because like you said, you go over there, there's no Google, there's no Facebook. They have their own social media and search engines and contact apps and things like that. It's it is a very, very different way of life that I think people should try and experience. You know, even if you're well-traveled, this is very different than anything else you've probably experienced, isn't it? Yeah, totally. I've been in 41 countries. I always keep track of them. <laughs> and uh, and that China is definitely so different than the rest. I've been there 10 times, so it'll be my 11th one now. And, um, and despite, of course, there's always also the political controversy and, and things happening, uh, then that also had some backlash on me when we organized the uh, China Pavilion during Amsterdam Dance events. I was, at a moment, being framed in the media as if I was being used by China to uh, propagandize Chinese artists. Well, I actually myself 
funded an event and uh, got some funding for it and um, brought in some Chinese artists and Dutch artists and French artists and people that played in China. So um, there, there's always a bit of controversy around it with, if you see what's happening in the world, it's also not strange. Mm -hmm. But I think music is a, a uni unifying tool that uh, allows to go as kind of a soft diplomacy over these difficulties because in the end we want to dance and we want to connect on a human level and most people don't want to be involved in all the political shit you know ah, right. so and and music is what people do like and there uh, i see that people become so happy of discovering this new music and that that brings our worlds closer together so i i keep on doing that yeah absolutely i mean as you said it's uh it's all about the opportunity and and just discovering you know a new culture you don't want to be involved in the politics obviously over there you hear a lot of politics from us but again they make it really hard because they they hear a lot of politics from our side as well that they don't want involved in their country don't they mm -hmm. yeah and but they also once i did a lecture on uh, nightlife development in chengdu and chengdu is the culture capital of china at least they pretend to be a lot of great uh, things going on and then I was uh, being critical, which I was a bit afraid of, because I said, you can't be a culture capital if you only have opera houses and uh, music universities. You also need small roots, grassroots venues. And some of them were closed for certain reasons. And next day I was quoted, but not censored anyway, in a, in a newspaper, which said what I said, the Chinese family translated it. And that was because I brought it with respect, but also saying what I want to say, what they flew me in for. Uh, and, and that's the other side, which you often don't hear, uh, because a Chinese person would never criticize our prime minister. But we always say, hey, uh, yeah, Xi Jinping is doing a very bad job. And uh, this can't, you can't do this, la la la. Well, we also don't know how to lead a country that never had democracy with 1.4 billion people. In their way, they do it their way. And they respect our way, how we do it here. And that's something I've, which you can only find out when you've been there. And that uh, people are totally most people living there are totally not politically involved they they don't mm -hmm. want to be they want to live their lives they see that there is growth in in uh, wealth and that they get more food than in the past and that they can buy a car and um that's it's a totally different world and, and i remember the first time going there i was quite afraid because yeah it, it's something yeah. i thought it would be like north korea or something <laughs> yeah yeah me, me too because you hear a lot of stories and things oh you know you see things on the news but yeah i mean it, it could have been more different i mean obviously there is very different rules and regulations like say the social media thing and and stuff like that but again it is full of people like here who, who are not involved in the politics they're just they want the culture they want nightlife they want to just live their lives don't they so you meet plenty of those people there as you would in any other country say yeah i i've made some really good friends for life which i'm finally gonna see after almost four years with both in between so i'm really looking forward to go back uh, yeah on the 17th of april that's brilliant yeah and uh, just going back to rainbow and tommy as well um obviously two great people i managed to meet them both at the festival albeit they were very busy very welcoming and they seem to be like that with every artist big and small as well do you, do you still speak to those guys regular? Uh, yeah, with Rainbow, uh, we're actually starting up some projects there in China. And, and Tommy and me are still in touch. He's living now in the Netherlands, more focused on sustainability. Uh, and he always had a passion for that. So uh, and he's not really in, in music anymore, as I recall. 
but Rainbow is still very active, starting new projects and uh, connecting me to certain people. So uh, we're we're gonna meet up and uh, talk about different uh, things. Yeah, uh, when I'm when I'm there. Yeah, I think I'll have to dust off my WeChat app and say hello to Rainbow and see see how she's going on because it's been a been a few years as well. So when you obviously you got in touch with Tommy and you start speaking to to get involved with them, was he already doing the Yin Yang Festival then when you first got involved? No, they were planning it. Uh, so when I could bring the artists, uh, and um, then that was the first edition, and then yeah, we did six in total. The one that you played was on a different location. Mm-hmm. And then COVID came, so yeah, <laughs> it was. Uh, we hope to redu- revive the festival uh, next year. On yeah, maybe the old school location was still very cool. Um, so possibility of of the Yin Yang Festival returning then? Theoretically, we would like to. We don't know how the the laws in the country change if it's practically possible, but uh, everyone would love to do it again. What would you say your job and your role was with Yin Yang Festival overall then? What did you do for them? Uh, Mainly bringing in the foreign artists uh, because, yeah, I have since Subsonic developed quite a big network of of interesting uh, artists. And yeah, to sometimes uh, have some bigger names that because we had very small budget, to persuade them a bit to to play this amazing festival and uh, for the Dutch ones or even like HBOB, we could arrange some travel cost funding and making sure that the lineup uh, was consisting of more than uh, Chinese artists and uh, foreigners that are already based in China. To uh, yeah, to make sure that the diversity in styles was there. We also brought a Juno reactor, for instance, like the godfather of Psytrance from Brighton, an amazing guy. Was in there. He really did a special show, and uh, yeah, many many others. And for instance, Treasure and Ditter, mm. Ditter in 2016 playing industrial hardcore kicks as the first one on the Chinese wall. I, I remember that he. Ended. Yeah, that's that's what blew me away. The fresh video as well, playing speedball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I remember Ditter was ending his set with a 300 BPM noise kick track and there was a Chinese with a little baby walking on the wall <laughs> and seeing all those crazy people <laughs> standing there. I was like, wow, what was this person think? Yeah, unreal sights. I mean, I remember getting up at, because um, obviously, you know, the, the time differences and things like that, and I'd only been there two days, so I was up at like... 5 a.m. on the first one and then didn't bother going to bed on the second so you're obviously seeing the sunset and sundown over the wall yeah. and just normal tourists going past amazing absolutely amazing <laughs> so who, who else did you bring over for the festival obviously i was there thrasher was there i know we had uh, uh frenic frequency frequency yeah, mc cool. swift when i was there what other artists over the years did you bring uh, so many. Uh, Posey, you might know. He's uh, yeah. also releasing. Uh, Running. Yeah, yeah. Ambivalence, Groningen. Uh, uh, yeah, HVOB, Reactor, um, Binary, which is like a techno duo from uh, Brazil. So they recently also played Printworks, uh, I think. And, oh, yeah, so many. <laughs> I should look at the lineups, but. Um, every year we um, we went with a, a small group of, of Dutch artists. Also brought a camera crew, so I still want to make a documentary about it with all the material that we shot. We also brought friends of me that I have a brewery. Then they in Hainan, the tropical island of China, they met another brewer, and uh, with the mate tea herbal extract, they came up with a very fruity beer. And that that beer was also being made for a student fraternity of their like 
their year beer. Uh, and yeah, in that dock, we, uh, we shot so much material, which you could really make a nice story of and to see how both worlds, despite the differences connect with human, uh, with music as a human connector and, uh, beer also. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, still something I want to do because we have the material, but it will take some time. I like, I need to pay a good editor and a director to mm -hmm. make out of that material mess something that has meaning instead of just some yeah i've still got a lot of footage myself that i've not i've not put up just not had time to kind of edit together but yeah i've I've kind of been getting in since i've been doing this i've been doing a bit more video editing so i think i'm going to finally get my act together and, and probably get my video diary up of of what happened right. there would be probably good to follow this video up as well i think just to kind of promote it yeah, as well so i'll definitely get that up um, so yeah, obviously a lot of artists were showcased over there as well. Um, COVID came around and, uh, obviously we know what happened there, but what was the festival already planned and ready to go by the time, obviously the pandemic shut everything down and, uh, did it cause a lot of issues? Yeah. Well, uh, for the whole music scene, of course, but especially for China being so strict at that time that nobody, a lot of people left also a lot of music industry people left. Which is also good in a way because some people were really hijacking the scene, especially in the commercial sector. So now there's a new playing field. People are hungry for new stuff. Oh, wow. Other genres have arisen. Uh, so I'm, I'm really curious because I will be one of the first, uh, oh, no, well, yeah, last month, China fully opened again. But um, people are hungry for new artists and, and concepts and styles. So uh, I'm, I'm really uh, looking forward to see what came out of those four years and it's not all bad so somebody new going to china now as opposed to when i was last there in 2019 is there is there a lot more restrictions involved for, for you to get to china now or is it is it really opened up quite a lot no, it's kind of the same i just did the visa application thing to to find in all the file in all the forms mm -hmm. it's a bit more uh, but not not radically different mm. okay and what what were the legalities of actually putting on a music festival on the Great Wall of China? Because obviously, like I said, this is this is the equivalent of throwing a rave in the Statue of Liberty or, or, or something <laughs> yeah. of that nature. Yeah. So what, what were the legalities of actually getting something like this together and letting it happen? Uh, well, there was a an, um, person responsible for that region who in the end has to say yes. And this person said yes. Wow. So, yeah, that... <laughs> then therefore uh because there was security it was police checking and there's a lot of meetings as well i would have thought yeah really yeah that, that takes a lot of uh, cultural diplomacy uh, i guess i was luckily not involved in that process because i can imagine for rainbow it's a pain in the ass to arrange but she managed all the time and it uh it's not easy no. yeah i mean the, the festival itself it did have i would say a lot more uh people from who were traveling from outside of china as well um, was this kind of what was expected of the festival as well for something for travelers to do? Or did you just have, a, was it a bit harder to kind of bring uh, people, Chinese people into the festival? Because it did seem a bit more lopsided in terms of the, the actual numbers. Yeah, there have always been a bit more foreigners, um, but every year, structurally, there was more Chinese people coming. And a lot of foreigners are also foreigners based in China that then heard about it and then travel, uh, yeah, like internally in China, you can travel quite easy. Let's say you do a three hour flight for 80 euros. It's quite common and there's a good train system also. 
So mm. amazing train system. There are <laughs> a million mile per hour trains. That Shanghai train, absolutely yeah. phenomenal being on that. I love that. I loved it. So the mission is indeed to to grow the Chinese audience with interesting music because yeah, you're not there to do an expat party, you know. Uh, but yeah, they're definitely also a big part of the audience. I guess it's obviously having the the Chinese artists as well for that to bring them in, isn't it? That's yeah, yeah. Be- and, and there's really got lots of good development going on. We're now also working on a, a totally different project, but that involves Chinese musicians, Jamaican musicians, Nigerian musicians, and Dutch musicians to have uh, cross border collaborations and inventing new genres learning from each other get inspired and in this way also bring the world closer together for instance and and a lot of interesting stuff happening in china on a musical level but they sometimes need some more finishing touch to really have that fat baseline or the crunchy hi-hat or whatever and i remember speaking to tommy as well he says one of the one of the factors that obviously helped them keep the festival going as well in terms of using that was there was a lot of charity work involved with uh some of the money was going to uh fixing the wall and things like that as well wasn't it was that quite was that something you were involved in and and was that quite prevalent with that um no i wasn't involved in that part i was mainly involved in the music part and uh, making sure that uh for instance, the group uh, that was with me and that met you, that, that they, uh, the older visa and the hotel and like all that logistical stuff that it was solid, so that you could just buy your own plane ticket, we took care of the rest, you could get drunk on a plane and things still would still be fine. Mm-hmm. So I just took the responsibility of the artists and, uh, and the group uh, traveling. But I think it, yeah, it was indeed, I think that also uh, made the go because I saw, hey, this is something that benefits the wall instead of uh, just people using it for a rave. So, yeah, as I said, it, it was a massive positive experience for me, probably the best I've ever had in the music industry. So I, I really hope that things obviously come together to to bring this festival back and to obviously have your involvement in it. It's uh, Yeah, it, it definitely is something I do think about quite a lot. And uh, hopefully your trip in April does start to uh, spark that fire a little bit. Yeah, I really hope so, and um, I keep on dreaming, and I don't think it's impossible, but uh, it won't be easy, but yeah, life is not always easy, <laughs> and yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited to to bridge the gap between both worlds again, both with our business as doing these social media things as well, so we started selling merch now, and doing tours uh, from for both sides, uh, from artists um, to both parts of the world, I can't wait. Yeah, and just for anybody who wants to look up about obviously what happens when you get to china uh and what's involved i believe you've got a website haven't you g2c.nl gateway yeah. to china yeah. so people go and check that website out have a read about what merlin is involved in uh and obviously it'll tell you everything on there won't it from you know the yeah media. linkedin or whatever instagram i always gladly help out or if you're an artist and you think, hey, I would like to go somewhere and I might need some funding or whatever. Maybe I know someone that does know it in your country or I always gladly help because I've also in my journey been helped by people that were very busy and still took the time to to advise me on some things or connect me to someone. So I always gladly do that back because I know if we all do that, we create a better ecosystem in which we all thrive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, that's all we got time for today, Merlin. Thank you so much for doing this interview. 
you're definitely a quite an inspirational person. You're involved in a lot of things that really do push artists in the music industry. And obviously, this is something that's brought me and you together. Very happy to speak to you today. Thank you for your time, mate. Well, thanks so much for covering all these topics. And um, yeah, I felt honored to be on your show. So it was a pleasure. And yeah, uh, yeah I, I can't wait to have a proper beer in real life with you. So we're going to plan that soon. <laughs> we are. It's going to happen. I promise you that. But thanks again, buddy. You hey. take care and good luck on your trip to China. Yes. Have a great day. And let's speak soon. <laughs>